0: All right, guys, First Peter chapter four. So this morning I want to read chapter four, one through verse seven. First Peter four, one through seven. "Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality and lusts and drunkenness, carousing drinking parties and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead. That though they are judged in the flesh according to men, they may live in the spirit according to God. But the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober unto prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you, Father, for your holy scriptures. Uh, Lord, an ancient document, but Lord, with relevant truth, with transcendent truth, with um, eternal truth. And Lord, we pray, as we do every Sunday, and hopefully even as every time we open your word, that you would give us understanding. That you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts to know the glories found in these precious words. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, we are going to focus in on verse 7. The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober unto prayer. The topic... This morning, as most biblical topics are, is weighty and one of immense consequence. Um, And perhaps this topic this morning, these particular verses, perhaps they're a little more weighty than normal, even. Um, You think about all of the the apocalyptic type movies that exist out there, There there's so many of them. Um, the 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 end of the world type type movies we the kids and I just watched star wars and the the tenor throughout the whole thing is the 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 always on the cusp and the brink of of the end of the civilization and there 's this sentiment inside human beings that that The greatest of all stories has this cataclysmic, apocalyptic end. We're sort of fascinated with it. But unlike the movies that are out there, where they sort of depict the end of the world in humanitarian terms or portray it as an ultimate disaster, we know that the true end of history is yet but the beginning of another. Some will experience glory... And some everlasting contempt. And also, there's a main difference between the biblical idea of the end and the apocalyptic idea of the end. uh, And that is truth, right? One is true, and one is not true. As the kids and I watched whatever it was, A New Hope or whatever. um, One of the things I just asked them is like, well, what's the difference between that and what we read in the scriptures? wasn't supposed to be a hard question. And ultimately, it's to, that's fake. The scriptures are true. And so what we find this morning as we look at pretty staggering words is that this is true. This is real life. The end of all things is near. That's a staggering claim. That's a staggering claim in the starkest and the most plain of terms. But the end of all things is near. So what I want to do is I want to certainly work through it, as I typically do, phrase by phrase, but, but also just give you some f- further reflections as, I, as I've thought through this verse. It's worth spending some time on and thinking through um, for lots of reasons, but, you know, we, we do well to consider the fact that this life is short. And this is why, obviously, mentioned. Or at least one of the reasons. So let's, let's think through it together. So, Peter starts off here with, but the end of all things is near. The term here for end it is the word telos. It means end or end. Result or completed goal has to do with the termination point on a line. He's saying that there is a a line throughout history, that history is not cyclical. It's linear, heading a certain direction, but it's not just a line with no stopping point. It's a line with a termination point, with a goal. It's all heading somewhere. I mean, you get that just from really one word. You can get the same idea, actually, if you turn to Genesis 1 and says, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. You can actually deduce from that that there's an end. So you can deduce from Genesis 1.1 and then you can deduce from later on in the New Testament these two ideas that history began and is heading somewhere with a termination, a fixed point. Now in one sense, this should be sort of exciting for us who know the Lord. This can inform your mundane everyday life, right? That it's, it's not always going to be making the donuts in some, uh, I don't know, way of frustration and boredom and, and, and just those everyday things we all have to struggle with. The history is going somewhere. Things are going to, to change but on the other hand, it could terrify you if you're not living for the Lord, if you're living as if there is no goal of history. But for those of us who know the Lord, this, this is to be the day we anticipate. This is the day that we long for, the day where we hear, well done. So if that's, if that's what you care about, if you care about righteousness, if you care about pleasing the Lord, I want you to see these, these words certainly as sobering, but also as exciting, But one, uh, one notion for sure that we must take to heart. So what end is Peter describing? Is this end point on a line. What's, what end is he talking about here? Well, we get, a, we get a word. It's really only one word in the original. It's the end of all. The end of all. Some people want to say the end of all people is near. Some commentators want to say that. It's kind of weird. It's just all. And I think it just is just supposed to be an all-encompassing term. The end of all things. The end of all things. The, you've heard the phrase, life as we know it. This is what Peter's capturing. This is the end of life as we know it. He's just described the day of judgment before, where all those dark things, all those malicious things done to Christians will be brought to light and Unbelievers will be held accountable. Believers certainly will be vindicated on that day but, and stand before God. But, but he's just mentioned that. So Peter has in, in mind this, this day of judgment. But here Peter says something even bigger, kind of, that, that the implications of that day of judgment means all things will end. Life as you know it will end. That's staggering. You know, that we know how it all ends. That's staggering. Sobering, brethren. All things. I just started to think, like, well, what what are we talking about here? (laughs) Everything. Your house, gone. Your clothes, gone. Your car, your commute to work, your projects, your, your office space, Red lights, stop signs, Starbucks, (laughs) Taco Casa, the trees in your backyard, your yard, your dog, your chicken coop, your neighborhood, your favorite beach house, mountain cabin, this church building, Greenville. South Carolina, the United States, North America, the Rocky Mountains, the Appalachians, the Mississippi, the oceans and seas, the Himalayas, all continents, the sun, the moon, the galaxy, the galaxies. The end of all things, brethren. Life as we know it. But more importantly, all injustice. Corrupt politicians, dictators, all bloodshed, all drug and human trafficking, all deception, all idolatry, all sorcery, all sin, all Satan's attacks to destroy and deceive the church will end. All broken relationships will end. And how about any chance of bringing the gospel to sinners? That will end too. It's the end of all things. I mean, really, at the beginning of this verse, you get a fairly breathtaking idea here. It's the end of all things. Side note, it's kind of one of the reasons I'm not premillennial, by the way. Because I think the end of all things is the next step for history. Not a millennium afterwards where evil and suffering and this present earth continue. I think Peter presents us with that next step. And it's the end of all things as we know it. And the day of judgment is right there in view in the text. They're together. Simultaneity to these two ideas. Okay, that was just a side note. But the end of all things, do you think of this often? Do you you think of this often? We must remember this. We must remember this idea of the end of all things being near. And I think this is why Peter actually begins with a word that is not in most of your translations. So Most of your translations probably do not have the word but at the beginning of verse 7. Does the ESV have but there? No, the NAS doesn't have it either. And guess which one has it? The accurate, the accurate standard version. Right. So the ASV has it. And you know why? It's because it's really there in the, in the original. And it's, but the end of all things is near. And you know what? It's, it's important. God put it there. It's not in most translations, but it needs to be there. The word but is an adversative. It, it, it's a word that, that contrasts a line of seeking, uh, of thinking, I mean. It, it presents that contrast. It qualifies a line of thought so that you don't take that thought too far. I can say, hey kids, let's watch a movie. But you've got to clean your room first. Right? Important qualifier. Or hey, when, when negotiating with clients, you can say, yeah, we can, we can do that. But I'll need to get you a quote. So so that term, but, it qualifies the line of thinking so you don't go a wrong direction. Well, what what is Peter's line of thinking up to this point, that he needs to insert that? Because it sort of feels weird to us. How how does the end of all things being at hand contrast or qualify his thought flow? Think of his flow. So the flow up until this point, he's been saying, the gospel's been preached to individuals, Some have believed, they're transformed, and now they live lives devoted to Jesus. And this life of following Jesus will mean suffering. Right? We have a mindset now that we live for Christ and we obey Him even if it costs us. And this life of following Christ is strange to unbelievers, especially the ones that once knew us. It's threatening to them. And now we get mistreated. We get maligned. And maybe even killed. But Peter says those persecutors will be judged one day. God is ready to judge them. And yet the ones persecuted will survive the day of judgment and live by the Spirit in resurrection life like Christ. That's his flow. And then he says, but the end of all things is near. So so how is Peter qualifying it? How is he contrasting? Well, I think what he's contrasting here is any mindset that thinks that day of judgment is far off. Don't go that far. I'm saying day of judgment. That's a big topic, right? That's a huge idea. We want to put it millions of years from now. Peter says, don't do that. (laughs) But the end of all things is near. That's what he wants you to feel. And perhaps some are in despair, thinking judgment will take forever to come, vindication will take forever to come. And so Peter's seeking to give them relief, perhaps. For many brethren across our nation or across our world that experience intense persecution of family and friends and relatives and wives and husbands, I mean, and pastors, I mean, this in some sense couldn't come quick enough. But I think maybe even more likely here is the reality that we just naturally become sleepy. We just naturally become indifferent toward this reality that the day of judgment will come soon. I think this is probably Peter's angle because he speaks here of sobriety and sound judgment. We must be sober and have sound judgment because the end of all things is at hand. So, the term, but, it's like a cup of cold water in your face saying, don't just walk off after I've said God is ready to judge the living and the dead and and just not be, just think that it's some distant thing. Recognize it's near. It's near. The day of judgment is near, it's at hand. Remember, Jesus gives a parable, Matthew 24. Describing how vital it is to be watchful and faithful while the master is gone. And to be faithful all the way until he returns. What does he say? He says this. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give him their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds, so doing when he comes. What's Jesus going to find you doing when he returns? What's he going to find you with? What's he going to find you looking at on your phone? What's he going to find you looking at on the computer? What's he going to find you saying? What's he going to find you doing when he returns? Oh, that's, that's a sobering thought. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. If the Lord Jesus is seeing you live lives that are faithful to him, he's going to say, man, I've got so much in store for you, and, and it's not going to be riddled with frustration and pain. It's going to be imbued with grace and power and strength and success. But guess what word we have right after that? <laughs> but. But. If that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? Why? Well, because he thought it was a long way off. It's a long time coming. Jesus is saying, don't have the mindset that his coming's far off, such that you begin to live a life of self-indulgence and sin and difference. As the writer of Hebrews says, you neglect so great a salvation. You end up just sort of, well, I meant to, but I didn't. And then you begin... Worldliness begins to just creep in and that kind of thing. That can happen. It can happen. Jesus is warning against that, right? That's what he's warning against. That's not Chris. That's what Jesus is warning against. We should be living with a mindset of constant expectancy of his coming. If you lose a sense of the imminence of the second coming of Christ, you will become worldly. So Peter says, don't think it's a long way off. Don't have that thinking. Don't let your line of thinking be millions of years from now. He wants us to think maybe today. Maybe tomorrow. And this is what the next phrase tells us. Peter says the end of all things is at hand. He doesn't just say the end of all things will happen. He gives you a time component. He gives you a proximity component. He wants you to to have a sense that it's not a long way off and that it's close. That's Bible. That's not pessimism. That's not pessimism. That's Bible. At hand. The end of all things is near. The end of all things is at hand. The term has to do with Approaching something or coming near. In other words, it was far away and not at hand, right? And now it's in your view. Now it's in your presence. It's within reach. It's at hand. It's right there. Here are some verses to give you a sense of it. Matthew 21.1 says, when they, that is Jesus and the the disciples, when they had approached Jerusalem and had come near to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. That word approached, is it. When they had approached Jerusalem. So the idea is that Jesus had been traveling through Galilee and other regions around the Jordan and Samaria. But there came a time when Jesus was focused on going to Jerusalem for the remaining days of his life. And right before entering, they first went to Bethphage which is just outside, a few miles east of Jerusalem. So they were now a stone's throw. They were super close. That's the idea. They were super close to Jerusalem. Matthew 21, 34. Jesus giving the parable here. The vine growers. Jesus says, When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. Because of the nearness of the harvest, Jesus is saying here in this parable, because of the nearness of the harvest, the slaves were sent to the vine growers. You know, they've been waiting all year and plowing and planting, and now the fruit of their labors was ready to be picked. It, it is here. They can see that corn, they can see that wheat ready to, ready to come off for use. It has approached. Mark 14 42, get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. There it is. Jesus basically saying, we're going to see Judas in a matter of minutes. You know. Not weeks and months, but he's at hand. So you get the drift. At hand or near, it just means close in time and proximity. So Peter's saying, the end of all things, as we know it, is within reach. It is approaching. Pick on another millennial view here. Postmillennialism. It's one of my main concerns with postmillennialism. I have several, but I do think postmillennialism does not fully appreciate the New Testament pervasive teaching of the imminent return of Jesus. Postmillennialism, for some of you who don't know, postmillennialism is the position that the gospel will have so much success worldwide in converting people that one day the world will be basically Christian. Persecution will be less and less until, as like Kenneth Gentry says, it's basically negligible. I heard a comment recently by a popular guy that I actually like. And no, in a distant way. He recently became postmillennial, and he wrote a article, sort of mocking at the idea that the world is a sinking ship, because for postmillennialism they think that the world will they'll 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 sort of gradually become more of a golden era, and Jesus will return in such an era. Some of them still believe there's like a, a mass persecution at some sense at the end, but by and large, the world will be Christianized, and Jesus will return. And so he sort of mocks at the idea of the world as a sinking ship. He says this quote: "If people think we are the terminal generation, there is not much motivation for generational discipleship and building. Postmillennialism tends to be the most productive of the theological systems." It uniquely fuels men to see the significance of family, church, education, and culture. All other eschatologies are pessimistic and produce apathetic passivity. So, I could say a lot here, but I sympathize with the desire to want to build lasting works for future generations. I sympathize with that. I certainly don't want to do flash-in-the-pan stuff. Um, We certainly don't. But the reality is the New Testament just doesn't talk in terms of generational discipleship and culture building and colonizing nations under Jesus' reign. The New Testament speaks as if any generation could be the last. I mean, what what other what else do you draw from the end of all things is at hand? How are you supposed to come away from that verse? We're gonna read some others. The end of all things is is not written for us to think a thousand generations away. It is at hand. And there is a reason that Jesus and Peter are talking like this. There's a reason that the New Testament writers speak of the imminent return of Christ and the kingdom of God. And it all has to do with redemptive history. It all has to do with where we are situated on God's timeline. You know, as you reflect on the Old Testament, you don't... You don't don't have the Old Testament prophets really talking like this. You don't have Abraham and Moses saying the end of the world is imminent. You don't hear David saying the end of all things is near. You certainly do have predictions in Isaiah and, and Ezekiel and the minor prophets of global judgment. And some of these do have a sense of imminence to them, but they're shrouded in prophetic language that we really can't truly unpack until the New Covenant's established and the New Testament writers sort of interpret it for us and put things where it goes. But you don't have like a Daniel telling the children of Israel that the end of the world is near. Matter of fact, God tells Daniel to seal up the visions. But Jesus, Peter, and the New Testament writers talk like this, stating plainly that the end is imminent. I think that it's because Jesus and the New Testament writers they know the unfolding plan of history they know what it means that jesus has come and the era that he establishes i mean just in peter's letter alone if you turn back over to chapter 1 verse 10 peter's talking about this new birth that the saints have experienced there and the fact that they love jesus now and the fact that trials has purpose now Verse 10, and he describes it, he says, As to this salvation that you're experiencing, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. In other words, they were scratching their head on things that they were preaching. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So there's the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. That that sort of captures this age, the age the prophets were speaking of. And it says that it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So when you see Christ coming, him suffering, him bringing about a certain level of glory through the Spirit, the gospel being preached, you know you live in the the prophetic fulfillment You live in that time that that was anticipated long ago. That's the time that we live in. Listen to Jesus in Mark 1.15. It says that Jesus went about preaching and saying, the time is fulfilled. Fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. There's our word. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe in the gospel. So before before Jesus begins to go preach, he wants you to know where he's situated in time. I'm bringing about a fulfillment of time. What does Paul say? In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born under the law, born of a woman. In the fullness of time, so much anticipation. So much just, just, just content and prophecy and, and expectation of this day where, where all of prior revelation comes to this climax in the coming of the Son of God. And Jesus says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. That kingdom that destroys all other kingdoms and outlasts all other kingdoms. That kingdom... Is here. Jesus is saying, in my own person, and now through his death and resurrection, we'll establish it. And pour out his spirit and create the church and, and gather the recipients and the citizens of the kingdom to himself. This is all what's bound up in that. But my point is that under the old covenant, you couldn't say that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God was near in that sense. You, you wouldn't say the end of all things is near. You, you, you wouldn't say, as John does, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining you wouldn't say that. It's sort of in a one sense all the time a shadow. Glimmers of light here and there, but not not in the overlap of the ages where darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. As John says, now the second coming of Christ is at hand. In other words, there's only one more step to wrapping up this present heavens and earth. It's the second coming. All the pieces of the puzzle of redemptive history have come to pass, Peter is implying here. And we are on the precipice of the end. So Peter can say the end of all things is at hand because we aren't waiting on Messiah's first coming anymore to establish the fullness of time. We're waiting on his second and final coming that is approaching. Now Paul speaks this way too. Listen to 1 Corinthians 10, 6-11. I'm going to read some scripture here talking about the children of Israel and the fact that they were unbelieving and idolatrous and God killed them, many of them. Paul says, now these things happened as examples for us. He doesn't just say, hey, draw a lesson (laughs) from Israel. He says, no, they happened as examples for you. There was an intentionality in that situation. These things happened as examples for us. Israel falling dead in the wilderness in some sense was under God's sovereign design to teach you a lesson. What is it? Well, that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. We would not just be given over to our just cravings like they were. And forget God. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. I guess idolatry is still possible then. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. The frivolity, the immorality. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written down for our instruction. Not just for the nation of Israel's archives. Right? For the instruction of the church. Were they written down. You should go back and read the Exodus and wilderness wanderings to keep your own soul faithful to the Lord and not crave evil things as they did and not grumble and complain like they did and take that seriously. That's why it was written down, brethren. The Old Testament's a Christian book, not a Jewish book. It's a Christian book. It's always important to remember that. But he says, And they were written down for our instruction, Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Wow, what a statement. We are at the tail end of history. You know, there's there's the history of redemption, right? There's creation, fall, flood, Abraham, Moses, Exodus, David, Kings, exile, prophets, all pointing to and awaiting for Messiah. Well, Messiah's come. Hasn't he? He's come. He's died. He's risen. And now he reigns. And we're at the end. The reason we exist right now is because there are excellencies of God to proclaim to this fallen world. I mean in big picture sense that's why we're at the tail end the consummation of the ages have come upon us all that remains is the final elect saints to be brought in and the end will come one of the other things you realize about Paul's statements here is that the church is not an afterthought in God's program it is the point we are the point. We are the focal point. The things happened. Do you hear what he said? The things happened as examples for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We're this focal point. We're not a parenthesis. You know, there are theologies out there that teach that the church is sort, church is sort of a parenthesis and that Israel's is God's point. No, 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 no. The church is God's point, made up of Jew and Gentile alike. The ends of the ages haven't just come upon the Jews. (laughs) It's come upon the church. That's where we live. All of history was heading toward us. We, we, We are the fruit of the Messiah's suffering. What a privilege. All Old Testament revelation written for our instruction. The church of Jesus Christ given countless examples and types that in the Old Testament teach us and warn us and encourage us. God has always had his heart set on this era. Isn't that what Jesus says? Many kings and righteous men long to see what you see. And they did not. That's where we live and we gotta get a grip on that. That's just not theology. You know, it's just not theology. It's truth. The Bible wants you to orient yourself in history to understand the massive privilege that you find yourself enjoying. And you've got to get a grip on it. It's got to get a grip on you so that you realize your time is short. You've been given a glorious salvation. And now be that faithful and sensible slave who obeys his master. And when he returns, he finds you doing that. One day you'll rest from your labors. But now's the time to labor. Now's the time to labor. This is the time when when you work. This is the time. (laughs) This is the time where there's the anxiety for the churches. There are people in this church that I really worry about. People that flounder. People that disappear. This is the time where we need to recognize there's an an adversary, there's there's an enemy, there's great stakes. But great encouragement, great resource in Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God within us, all of these things. We we live in this era where we are amply supplied to do whatever good works we want to do. I know we have human limitations and all of that, but I'm just saying... Are we going to be the faithful and sensible slaves that want to serve our Lord? I know you do. I know many of you do. This is not a blanket indictment that we're all lazy. But if you're lazy, snap out of it. (laughs) You don't want to be shocked on that day that it would come upon you, as Jesus says, like a trap. Don't forget God in your abundance. Don't forget God in your hardship. We can forget God both ways, can't we? We are those upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul, again, listen to what he says here. Some pretty staggering words. But this I say, brethren, that the time has been shortened. This is in the context of marriage. See, see, living in the ends of the ages on the tail end of history has implications to your marriage and family. It does. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened. Okay, so what's the implication? So that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep as though they did not weep. And those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as those as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. Again, I just don't hear the generational discipleship thing going on here. I don't see, let's build cultures Christianly. I just don't feel that. I don't feel that. I'm not saying, again, you don't plan for future generations. I think we should, but I just, if you're going to pay attention to the New Testament, you've got to feel the world is passing away. Paul says we live in a time that's now shortened. That is, the era of the, of the passing away of the world is closer and closer and closer in view. It's, in within, it's within reach to us in the church age. Marriage now to be viewed as temporary, as not an end. Be careful for focus-on-the-family-type Christianity, where a family can become so isolated and disconnected from the kingdom and from hospitality and the gospel and prayer meetings because they're focused on the family and they're focused on the homestead and they're focused on, on this huddle. You can fail in the Christian life by neglecting your family. You can fail in the Christian life by making your family your supreme focus. Jesus says, unless you hate your father, mother, children, you're not worthy of me. You know. That's what he says. Of course, he doesn't mean you literally hate them. That is, you put them out in the cold, you don't feed them, you don't clothe them, you don't love them in that sense. What he's saying is, the kingdom of God is absolute priority. It is supreme. Serving Jesus Christ, loving Jesus Christ, living for Jesus Christ, is more important than your kids. It's more important than your spouse. And that trickles in how you teach your kids and how you love your spouse, right? You don't let your kids think that life is all about sports. You don't let your kids think that life is all about money. You don't let your kids think that life is all about comfort. You let them know that it's about the gospel. We're going to go to a prayer meeting. I know it's cold. I know it's inconvenient. We're going to do these things. Why? Because we live upon the ends of the ages. Time is short. The day of judgment is in view, Brethren, This is the point. We're not like Mormons that want to create this unrealistic marriage thing that's eternal. I'm so thankful for my wife. I'm so thankful that I'm married to her. I thank the Lord all the time for my wife. But the reality is, it will not go on beyond the day of judgment. There is a greater marriage that will, though. And this is where our hearts have to be fixated. Brethren, if your heart is not fixated and it's fixated on human relationships, you will end up in despair, despair and frustration and depressed. Oh, our hearts need to be fixed beyond that day. The end of all things is at hand. The marriage and the family are not ultimate. It's kind of a shift from Genesis 1, isn't it? I mean, Genesis 1, you feel like, man, world's just getting going. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, right? And now Paul says, don't live like you're married. I think there is an adjustment. I think there is an adjustment. Again, I'm not saying we shouldn't get married. I think we should get married. I think we should have kids. I think we should have more than one kid. If we can, if the Lord wills. Sometimes he doesn't. But don't live as if we're just starting out in Genesis 1. Don't let your theology be that. Let it be this. The end of the ages is where we find ourselves. The end of all things is near. History has changed. The world as we know it is on the verge of being replaced. He says those who weep as those do not weep even trials and sorrow to be seen as temporary even the joys that we have not to be sought as ultimate pursuits those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice he says those who buy as though they did not possess possessions to be looked at as not truly owned And the world, in terms of its interests and delights and its gadgets and its industry, not to be fully invested in. Why? Because the end of all things is at hand. It is passing away. That is what Paul and Peter and Jesus are saying. Do you believe that? You know, if we lived at the beach, and I told you a hurricane was coming in a couple days... Would you go out and plant flowers and trees? Would you go out and wash your car? Right, if you knew the next day hurricane's coming, what would you do? I mean, it has some impact on your life. I'm not saying don't go plant trees, okay? I'm not saying don't wash your car. But I'm saying knowing the fact that future judgment is coming and that it's imminent, It'll alter how we live. It should alter as how we live. As a matter of fact, the New Testament writers teach that one cannot faithfully do the duties of life and work and family without this reality on your mind, on your consciousness. Paul says when you're working, don't forget the fact that you're working. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. That's what he says. So work heartily. When you're at work and, you're, and it's hard and, and, and it's a struggle and, and you're wanting to you know, you want to sort of just shortcut this and that. Just know the Lord Jesus watches these things. Work is spiritual to Christ. You can set yourself apart. You can bear a good witness to Jesus in being a good flooring installer, a good warehouse manager, a good you know, data architect, a good manager, whatever it is. This is not a theology of escape, right, and just wait. This is a theology that says, man, we are headed for a day. Where I'm going to be rewarded for my investments in this life, and so I want to infuse it with the motivation to glorify God in all of it. That's, that's more of the idea. But I hear of people talking about homesteading. Now again, I'm not a, like if you want to grow your own stuff, have your own lifestyle. I think that's awesome. I think that's great. But, but most, a lot of times I hear about it as if it's this just sort of ultimate dream. I hear the language of dream, like my dream bathroom, my dream house. I hear this stuff from Christians. And I'm like, is that really how you talk? Is that how, should, is that how we should talk? I mean, are our dreams so small that a bathroom with marble counters is what we dream about? Is that... Brethren, the time has been short and the world is passing away. The end of all things is near. There's a new heavens, new earth coming. There's future glory. There's a crystal sea, crystal river flowing from the throne of God. There's a glorified garden where Christ is all. Dream bathroom. I don't know. Dream house. Brethren, that's, that's all you dream about. Repent. Get a grip of the scriptures. Let your heart soar to the realities of the glory that are to follow us. I'm not against nice things. I'm not against a room that's nice and aesthetically pleasing. right? I'm not an ascetic. I remodel for a living. But the reality is your marble counters are going to be somebody else's one day, if not burned up. Hope you view them that way. Hope you view your stuff like that, so that you let people come over. So that you open it up to be trampled and be hospitable without complaint. I hope that's the way you view your possessions. Paul says those who buy as though you don't have anything. They're all tools. He says use it. Use it for the kingdom. Use your investments for the kingdom. Not to store up bigger and better barns. There was a guy who did that, right, in a parable. And Jesus said, don't be like that guy. He said, don't be like that guy. That guy said, I'm going to build bigger and better barns and be stored up and be totally fine and kick back and say to my soul, soul, take your ease. And Jesus says, you don't know. That very day, your soul will be required of you. Don't put your hopes and dreams and houses and cars and think they mean anything ultimately other than tools to serve the Lord. Certainly things can be enjoyed, but not as ends, not as that which gives you identity and purpose, What's Peter's point? Peter's point is the end of all things is at hand. It's near. It's right around the corner. You can reach out and touch it. You know, it's Christmas time, and so I'm sure if your kids are like my kids, you know, they're counting down the days. You know, there was a time earlier this year where you, you could have said that Christmas was not at hand. But now it is, right? We've got lights up. We've got garland. It's right here. We can touch it. Here before you know it. And that's what we're going to think of the end. It could be here before we know it. That's the way the Bible wants you to feel. That's the way He wants you to think. Again, not to neglect your family, not to neglect your job, not to neglect neglect your personal prayer life, not to neglect any of these things. But but let let all of those things be infused with purpose and meaning because that day is going going to, to, you're going to give an account before the Lord on the way you lived on the way you spent your time. Um, even on the way you enjoy his good gifts. I found myself thanking the Lord for allowing me and my boys to go fish. I'm so, I'm so thankful for that. Such an awesome time together. You know, but I'm infusing it with the Lord. These are good, joyful things. God tells us that he created the Leviathan to sport in the ocean. Nobody sees that Leviathan swimming around, but God sees it. And he enjoys it. And he, and, he, and he made it to sport and to play. There's a sense in which like, we want to thank the Lord, certainly for the hard times, but also for just the joys and gifts too. Don't, don't forget that. All of it. Gosh, there's so much more here. Let me finish with this. Actually, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to go there. Let me put a little mark here. We'll pick this up next week or next time. But the question will be, well, it's probably glaring. You know, if Peter said the time was imminent in AD 64 and it's 2023, how can at hand or near be taken seriously? And that's what we'll deal with. We'll look at that. How can that be taken seriously? And one just quick answer to that is, number one, time is not the same with God as it is us. And he always wants us to recognize it could be at any minute. In other words, it's about the suddenness of it all. And there's lots of passages that talk about that. So we'll look at that a little bit more next time. But brethren, I I don't know. I I, I hope that it woke you up. I have to fight for this perspective just like you guys. Um, But this is what the scriptures teach us. The end of all things is at hand. And um, let that sober you up. The decisions you make. And what you invest your life in. It doesn't mitigate planning. It doesn't mitigate any of those things. But it does mean that you plan well. Right? And you plan... With the gospel in view. With the advance of the gospel in view. And the responsibilities God has given you, certainly with family and these things, that's all in view as well. But um, ultimately all that is just because that's what he said and we want to please him. So, let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this word. And Father, we just ask you that you would please help us to take these things to heart. And Lord, we certainly don't want to become ascetics where... It becomes don't taste, don't touch, that kind of thing. That's, that's, that's not the way, Lord. You, you have given us good things to enjoy, and yet, Lord, help us at the same time to not make full use of them as the world, as, as ends, as ultimate pursuits, Lord. We want the gospel advance and, and glorifying you to be ultimate. So, Lord, please help, help us to that end here at New Covenant. And um, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.